Chapter 2 of The Mystery in the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 In the morning, the trapper rose at the usual hour. It was his habit in the summertime to rise with the sun, and his custom each morning after rising, and before he had begun the morning tasks, to go and open the great wide door of his cabin and, standing on the threshold with uncovered head, look out upon the world as it stood revealed in the dewy light of morning. We cannot say what his thoughts were, but judging by the look of his face, they were such as a man at peace with himself and at peace with his maker, when looking at the beautiful works of his hands in their loveliest phase might have. Indeed, his countenance at such times in the peaceful gravity and grateful happiness of his expression was a picture of so fine a sort as to remain for years fresh and unfaded in memory's hall. If the day through the delightful coolness of its air, the cool stretch of water, the distant mountains, and the newly risen sun breathed a benediction upon him in a grateful, reverent, and happy reflection of his heart, he seemed to pronounce a benediction upon the day. For in the old man was that fine sense of appreciation, that childlike quality of greeting anything beautiful as a surprise, that to his simple mind caused each morning to seem not merely as the beginning of a new day, but a new beginning of the world. This morning, as he stood barefooted and with uncovered head in the doorway that opened toward the east, the beauty of the outward appearance was so extraordinary as to fill his receptive mind with reverent wonder. The Lord is certainly great in his power and great in his wisdom said the old man, talking to himself as the winds of the morning played on his brow, and the light of the rising sun warmed his features with its glow. For his devices be many, and the beauty of his doing beyond man's thinking. I have lived on the earth till my head be whitening and studied nature with an eye mercifully fitted for noting things. But certain it is that the earth grows handsomer each year, and the mornings as they follow each other, be prettier and prettier. I certainly hope that the Lord has a nose to smell the sweet things he has made, and that his ear this minute hears the robin that he strains his little throat on that maple out there, and he certainly loses a good deal if he doesn't come down off and on and take a look on the woods from the top of Mount Sewer there, not to speak of the streams and the lakes and the sunrises and sunsets that he might see from that point if he chose the spot for his outlook with judgment, and there's certainly some bends in the rockette that he ought to look at more than once, for Henry says that the rockette is the handsomest river in the world, and Henry is careful of speech, and his judgment is good. And here the old man paused a moment, and a yearning look came into his face, and his eyes changed their expression so that, though open, they seemed not to see, at least, see nothing nigh, for to them came a faraway look as if their vision had overleaped the mountain and was stretched to see the distant, and to him, the unknown world of cities and crowding men beyond their blue rim. And then he said, May the Lord forgive the discontent of my spirit, when his mercies be round me thicker than the pine stems on the ground. But I must own that I feel a little lonesome at times, and the sight of the boy's face would be sweeter to me this minute than the sight of the morning. It may not be right to have such feelings, 
and I trust the Lord will look in mercy on the weakness if he be displeased at the craven. And I have fought again it. Yes, I have fought again it, for fear it wasn't right. For it's wrong for mortal man not to be content with enough, and I certainly have enough. Fiddles to eat and good strong garments, and a rod that the boy himself gave me, and a weapon that a man can trust his life to, and the pups, yes, the pups be a great comfort. Certainly I ought to be content and not wish for anything more, leastwise not crave it with yearning. And yet, if I could hear the crack of the boy's piece a mile or two down the river this minute, and know that he was actually coming, I doubt at the thought of all his goodness. Well, well, muttered the old man as he turned back into the cabin. Sunrise is sunrise, and Henry is Henry, and it's the Lord's own tempting when he gives to a man of my years two such boys as he give me, Henry and the lad. And he paused a moment and gazed at the two picture frames hanging on the wall, the one filled with the portrait of Henry, the other empty to all eyes but his. But to his eyes the empty frame was filled with a simple, innocent, heroic face that he and Henry had buried under the pine in the grave by the sea. Half an hour later the old trapper was seated at his table, enjoying with finest relish a breakfast which, in a variety of food, was limited, but in delicacy of quality would have satisfied the cultivated taste of an epicure. The two hounds were sitting on their haunches at the end of the table, looking at the eater with the most wistful and imploring of all looks, the look of a hungry dog. "'I tell you, pups,' said the old man as he stopped for a moment in his eating, holding between his thumb and forefinger a trout small of size and brown to a turn. "'I tell you, pups, ye ain't more than half-mannered. Ye act well enough for ye keep your places, but your looks be unusually earnest.' and I can't take hold of a morsel without your looking as if it belonged to you, and I was sort of robbing you and eating it myself. Now, Rover, you ain't rational. What's the use of giving you such a trout as that? If you swallowed it, you wouldn't know where it was, and a boatload of such fish wouldn't fill you. I heard Henry say one day that there was a kind of man down in the settlements that would eat and eat, and the more they'd eat, the thinner they'd get. The vittles didn't seem to do him any good. Didn't fill him up and thicken him out. And a man whose emptiness can't be filled with swallowing is... And here the old man paused a moment, evidently at fault for a word. But human nature in the hunter's cabin is very like human nature, well, in a pulpit, say. And so the old trapper backed up verbally for a new start and with an earnestness and unction entirely uncalled for by the exigency of the case, exclaimed, as he flourished the trout, A man whose emptiness can't be filled by swallowing is a miracle, certain, certain, said the trapper as if relieved. Lord, what things words be, and how they relieve the feelings when you drive them out with a little more than ordinary earnestness. With such remarks, half serious and half humorous, the old trapper was accustomed to enliven his repast. The hounds, with the facility of canine intelligence, had become entirely familiar with the program, and no one could see them and not feel that they had become so wanted to the discourse of the trapper as to give countenance to his belief that, beyond what is expected of their species, the dogs understood the drift of his remarks. 
Indeed, there seemed to be a subtle understanding between the three that inhabited the cabin, for more than one stranger had noted that the hounds shared the mood of their master, and that their companionship rested on the foundation of mutual sympathy, that the trapper's belief in the capacity of his canine companions to understand was entirely sincere, no one who watched his treatment of them could for a moment doubt. When the old trapper had finished his breakfast, he moved, as was his custom, his chair back from the table, and, facing toward the hounds, proceeded to give them their repast. The dogs took their position, one at either knee, and with a decorum which would have done credit to human members of a civilized community, received their allotted portions, eating the morsels, as the trapper fed them alternately, in grave but grateful silence. "'Well, well,' said the trapper, while thus deliberately feeding his dogs, "'how happy-like it makes a man feel to feed something that's hungry. "'Now, pups, I don't conceit, knowing as you be, "'that ye know the happiness it gives me to give you morsels that are your swallowing. "'I dare say you feel happy-like yourselves. "'Yes, I know you do, for a dog can't lie with his tail, "'and the way you be wagging him is certainly proof that your spirits be peaceful.' and your eyes shine like the eyes of a little redskin when you give him a trinket. The maker of the earth must certainly be happy to see the creatures that he's made at their feeding. I've often conceded that he kept his eye on things a little closer than the missioners preach, and it may be that he gets a good deal of his happiness in making the creatures he has made comfortable, and watching them as they go about their business, each arter his nature." "'There, pups, you've eaten the last morsel, "'and you've had a mighty small meal, judging by your size, "'for you're both as gaunt as you was when I started. "'But I've given you a good meal, "'and though I know how your innards are put together, "'yet I never could understand how one of your kind, Rover, "'could eat as much as you can, "'and look no bigger arter you'd eaten than afore you'd begun. "'It may be,' said the old man calculatingly, it may be my eyes be a little faulty, but I've conceded more than once, Rover, that the more I fed you, the gaunter you got. I can say in certainty that I never seed you filled yet, or turn your muzzle from a morsel that was offered you. The old trapper cleared away the dishes, and after he had swept the floor and brought a fresh pail of water from the spring, stood for a moment in the center of the cabin. The look on his face was the look of a man engaged in profoundest thought, a man studying a subject that the more he studied, the more it puzzled him. In a few moments, he took his rifle from the brackets, and going to the doorway, he stepped forth, and, seating himself on a bench, called the dogs to his side, and said, Pups, I be worried in my mind. Yes, I certainly be worried, nigh on the frettin', and a man who worries on the frettin' does a most unrational deed. And if you want to know what it's about, Pups, I'll tell you. Rover? Do keep your mouth shut. It worries me to see you lap your chops in that way. Why don't you keep your manners when you be in council? It's that camp down there. That camp on the point. I run in on it last night, Rover, and though I used my eyes in a judicious manner and seed about all there was to see outside of canvas, yet I'm not sure that I seed all. No, I'm not sure I seed all repeated the old man with emphasis. There's too much tent in that point, pups. There's a good deal too much tent. And here the old man paused, and taking a piece of buckskin from his pocket, he rubbed the silver plate on the cheek piece of his rifle, on which his name was graven, 
and then resuming, he said, They're a hard set. They're a harder set than I ever seed in the fur country, them chaps be. Now I know a vagabond, whether he be half-breed, white, or redskin, that is, such vagabonds as we have had in the woods, but them chaps down there be another sort. I doubt if one of them could tell a buck's track from a doe. They don't look as if they was raised in the woods. They look a good deal like them sort of chaps Henry told me about. He said there was a kind of vagabonds in the cities that took their schooling from the devil at the start and growed into wickedness as they growed into strength, learnt themselves all evil ways and didn't fear God nor man. And here the old man paused again and taking the caps from the hammers, he wiped the tubes with a buckskin rag. And I certainly conceit, resumed the old man as if he had not lost his thread of thought, that them vagabonds be city vagabonds, and a sassy set they be, too. And the chap that drawed his knife on me drawed it as if he'd drawed it a good many times, and acted just as if he'd used it a good many times. And he had a quick eye, too, a sort of a rational way with him, for he wasn't long in finding out that I'd covered him when he jumped, and he certainly stopped at the right point for... If he'd taken another jump, I'd open daylight through him. Brave? Yes, he's brave, and he's cool. And a man that faces that chap on equal terms would have to do pretty quick work to save his life, as I judge. How did they get in? said the trapper after a moment's pause. I see by your eye, Rover, that you think someone guided them in, and you're right. And whoever guided them chaps in knowed enough to wash his trail clean out of the carries. For while Bill said there wasn't a sign of a party in all the North Country, and the question comes up, who was captain of that gang? For he must be the man that guided him in. And here the old man paused again, and placing a couple of caps on the tubes of his rifle, he raised it to his eye and fired. The smoke cleared in an instant, and the report of the left barrel followed the right. I thought it would, said the trapper to himself, for it's been loaded a week, and the fog was heavy as I come through the chain of lakes. Yes, that left barrel burnt a little slow, and the hole is bigger by half the width of the lead than it ought to be. It isn't much, no, it isn't much, the half the width of a bullet of fifty paces, but it's more by half a bullet than it would be if the powder had been perfectly dry. I won't drive home another bullet till I've taken the breech pins out and made the barrels shine, for there's no telling what's ahead. No, pups, there's no telling what's ahead. And if they should get sassy down there on the point, and Henry be late in coming in, it may be that lead will be flying round here afore a week. And then, as a graver expression came over the old man's face, he said, I hope not. I certainly hope not. For if they should try any of their pranks on me, there'd be close work round the shores of this lake. For they'd be five to my one, and the leader of the gang wasn't there last night for certain. An hour later, the old trapper had finished cleaning his rifle, and standing in the spot where we left him soliloquizing, he was in the act of loading. Even an ordinary observer would have noticed that he paid more than average attention to the charging, and when the act was accomplished, he lifted it to his cheek and ran his eye through the sights, and then dropping the barrel into the hollow of his left arm, 
he gazed for a moment out upon the lake and muttered to himself, I'll ambush that camp tonight. There's deviltry somewhere there for certain. If I knew who the leader was, the riddle would be half-guessed. And then there's that big tent with no door to it, leastwise none that opens towards the lake, as a daughter if it be a pleasure tent. And the question arises, what's in that tent? Why be they so scared that an honest man should come into their camp? Why be they in such a hurry to get him out? Why do they draw a knife on a man because he acts as a question? Lord, said the old man, what good things habits be. Now, if I'd left my rifle down in the boat and that chap had drawed the knife on me, there would have been a scrimmage sure as judgment, but I lined him as he jumped, and that helped things toward peace. No man's a right to leave his gun in the boat when he goes into a strange camp if he wants to have a peaceable time. Then there was a man in front of the tent. I seed him. And when the talking got earnest, why didn't he come down and join in? He acted a good deal as if he was put there to stay, and a man don't do sentinel duty in front of an empty tent. I tell you, said the old man, and he brought his fist down into the palm of his other hand. I tell you there's something in that tent, and John Norton will find out what it is if the clouds be thick tonight. The clouds were thick that night, thick as nature could pile above the earth. The darkness was of the kind that could be felt. It was just the night the trapper would have wished, in which to attempt the deed he was about to do. In the bottom of the boat he had spread a blanket. On the blanket he placed his rifle, and by its side an extra paddle. Thus, perfectly prepared for the work he was to do, the old trapper entered the boat and, shoving off, started up the lake. In less than an hour's time he reached the vicinity of the camp, but instead of there being a large, clear flame rising upward, the campfire was of very moderate dimensions, scarcely lighting the interior of the shanty, and only bringing dimly into view the three neighboring tents. The vagabonds learn a lesson quick, said the trapper to himself. A judicious hint about the big fire and the way in which it helped a man to draw on him has certainly learnt them economy teaching the use of wood. But if a low fire serves them, it certainly serves me, for I can lay myself up within fifty feet of the beach, and unless their eyes be better than I think, they won't know what eyes be on them and what ears be listening to them. They'll have to talk a good deal lower than they did the other night if they don't want to be heard by the man they treated unreasonably the first time he called on him. Talking thus to himself, he moved his boat in toward the beach. He doubled the point that stretched out to the right of the camp and inspected it as well as he could in the dim light from the further side. Little was to be seen beyond what he had already seen. The camp was nearly hidden in the darkness, and only a murmur of voices came to his ears. He moved his boat round to the front again and laid it up almost against the sands of the beach. Indeed, it was not ten feet from the beach when he brought it to a stand and sat straining his ears to catch the murmuring conversation. But strive never so hard he could not make out what they were saying. He heard his own name mentioned twice, and one or two oaths came to him distinctly. But beyond this his efforts were unavailing, and had it not been for a sudden and unexpected occurrence, he would have backed his boat from that beach into deeper waters, no wiser as to the character or plans of the party 
no wiser as to the leader's name, and no wiser as to the contents of the big tent than when he came. But something did happen, happened suddenly, happened in a way that would have proved fatal to a man of less experience and fertility of resource than was the trapper. The trapper had left the stern of his boat, and stepping softly along the blanket that lay stretched on the bottom, was now kneeling at the forward end, kneeling with his left hand on the gunwale and his paddle grasped in his right, struck into the sands by which to steady himself as he kneeled, bent forward, in the attitude of listening. As he thus knelt, with his body projecting forward and all his senses strained to the utmost tension, fastened on the camp and its occupants barely fifty feet in front of him, another boat, moving as noiselessly as had his and more rapidly from the lake toward the beach, struck his fare in the end, and out of a man's mouth not twenty feet back of him tore a frightful oath. It was well for the trapper that he was kneeling and well braced when his boat received the shock, or he would have been pitched forward onto the sanded beach. The instant that the oath sounded in the darkness back of him, the camp was in an uproar. The men who had been sitting in the shanty, only partially revealed by the light, poured out and started toward the water's edge. "'What the devil?' said the voice back of the trapper. "'Do you fellows mean to leave a boat loose for a man to run against in the dark when he comes to camp?' "'There's no boat there, Captain,' said one of the men, speaking up sharply. "'The canoes are all hauled up to the beach as you left orders.' "'What do you mean?' exclaimed the man with another dreadful imprecation. "'What do you mean to tell any such stuff as that to me? "'Don't you suppose I know a boat when I've got my hand on it? "'If you're drunk, I'm not. "'Come here with a light.' "'He never finished the word, "'for the sound he had started to form ended in a gurgle. "'The trapper had not been idle. "'The shock had not dislodged him, "'and he knew from whence it came and the cause of it. With a quickness and coolness which has made his name famous, the instant the incoming boat struck, he shoved the end of his own, in which he was sitting, round, describing half a circle, shoved it round steadily, firmly, and quickly until it was lying side by side with the other, and he himself sitting within arm's reach of the newcomer. And as he called for a light, even when the words were on his lips, the trapper's hand clutched his throat and the strong fingers settled into the flesh of the neck like the clasp of a vice. End of chapter 2